This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com/historyfiles to start your free trial membership. Many, many years ago. Building of human rights. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo. In June 1948, all road and rail communication. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Welcome to episode 52 of The History Files for the second week of May 2016. I'm Gordon Fry. And I'm Nancy Fry. And today we're going to talk about the development of the tank during World War I. The reason I want to talk about it now is, well, it's a hundred years ago, 1916, that the development of the tank was in full swing. They weren't introduced yet on the battlefield, not for another few months, but they were definitely in production. So that's what we're going to talk about today. May 8th, 1541. The Mississippi River is discovered for Europeans by Hernando de Soto. Obviously, the Native Americans who lived along its banks already knew about it. De Soto, a veteran of the conquest of Peru by Pizarro, and now governor of Cuba, wished to be in on the next great adventure in Spanish arms, the conquest of the seven cities of gold, as regaled by Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca in his travels in the present-day American Southwest and northern Mexico. Francisco de Coronado led, led an expedition from Mexico to the same ends at approximately the same time. May 8, 1945, is VE Day. And we'd mostly like to point out that the Russians lost about as many men taking Berlin in 1945 as we, the United States, did in the whole war. As Joseph Stalin said, the war was won with American money and Russian soldiers. May 10th, 1869, the Golden Spike was driven at Promontory Point, Utah, marking the official connection of the Transcontinental Railroad. The completion of the Transcontinental Railroad turned the time for traveling across the continent from a matter of months to a matter of days, an astonishing accomplishment, one of the first of the exponential reductions in travel time, which continued into the 20th century. May 14, 1804, the Lewis and Clark expedition sets out from St. Louis. The Corps of Discovery, with Sacagawea coming along as the wife of their guide Charbonneau, was only the second successful cross-continental expedition of north of Mexico. Alexander Mackenzie of the Northwest Company out of Montreal had been the first, making it to the Pacific Ocean in 1792. The Corps of Discovery, however, was able to reinforce the American claim on the Oregon Territory, first made by Captain John Gray of the Columbia in the same year that Mackenzie and George Vancouver made their claims for Great Britain. This is Hollywood. Sporting cast of thousands. What else came of my trip to the library? Romance, education, entertainment. For our media section, uh, first off, 
EA have released a trailer for their upcoming new Battlefield game due out in October. Instead of going forward farther into the future with Battlefield, Battlefield 1 looks like a World War I immersion experience with biplanes, tanks, and horse cavalry. According to Scott Johnson over at the Boop Show, gas masks are going to figure into the gameplay, so it sounds like EA are really trying to go all out with the historical experience. Are they going to include mud, too? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, that would really help if, if that's a factor. You are mired in mud. <laughs> you you cannot you can only move this fast. Get out of the mud and move faster. Yeah, hard to do. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. E3's coming up and maybe they'll have somebody yammer about that. I'm I'm, you know, Follow, definitely follow Scott over at the Boop Show. He always has the latest and greatest game information. And I'll put a link to the trailer in the show notes and a link to Scott's show. Uh, second up for a film, we thought we would recommend Kelly's Heroes from 1970. Since we're going to be talking about tanks today, it's not exactly a super historical film, but it's a classic and it's a heap of fun. And it's got some fun people in it. It's Telly Savalas and Clint Eastwood and Don Rickles. I, 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 Kiefer, uh, Donald, Donald Sutherland. Sutherland. I almost said Kiefer. But yeah, it's yeah, um, meta- negative waves. <laughs> yeah, it's it like like Mash. It's supposed to be an earlier time. Kelly's Heroes is supposed to be World War II, but it feels like Vietnam. Just like Mash is supposed to be the Korean War, but it feels like Vietnam. So there are you know people were com- making commentary about Vietnam with their you know with their media efforts, and it makes sense. But it's fun. It's a fun movie. Uh, also, we'd like to recommend a more recent film, 2011's War Horse, the adaptation of the stage play by Steven Spielberg. Neither of us have seen it yet. It's a tough one because if you're a horse person or a horse owner, the last thing you want to do is go watch a bunch of horses get killed, which is basically World War One is watching a bunch of horses get killed. So we've been hesitant to to see it, but we looked at the trailer a little while ago and we we're like, okay, well, we know how it ends. We, we you know, spoilers, the horse makes it, but he um, he's uh, that's a rarity most of the horses didn't so yeah that's the problem with war is it's as bad as it is on human beings it's even worse on the animals that are involved yeah now if you'd like to learn more about the building of that transcontinental railroad why not pick up nothing like it in the world by stephen ambrose head over to audible.com where memories of memories members of the history files audience can pick up this book as a free audio download with a free 30-day trial for new listeners visit www.audibletrial.com/historyfiles to take advantage of this offer. With over 180,000 titles to choose from across all genres, you're going to find something you love, including The Weapons of World War I, a history of guns, tanks, artillery, gas, and planes used during the Great War. Ooh, sounds like fun. History lives again. For our main topic today, I want to talk about tanks in World War I, and specifically the development of the tank. There's been a long history of armoring up wheeled vehicles for war. There's discussion of armored chariots as early as 3500 BC. Um, There were covered battering rams. Uh, People would make battering rams um, with boards and wet cowhides over them to uh, keep them from getting, catching fire. Um, With the introduction of gunpowder, that led to a whole lot of new ideas. In 1400, there was a uh, discussed uh, in a German 
author discussed an armored cart with cannons on it. 1500 Leonardo da Vinci, of course, uh, made plans for an armored car with cannons on it. I like his because it has guns all the way around. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's nice and, and circular. And uh, Maximilian, the Emperor Maximilian, in his Tyrolean armory, uh, there's pictures of carts with cannons, uh, hakenbusche, and shields, which would be pushed forward against the enemy. Uh, so there were a lot of a lot of thoughts about this uh, very early on. Also, if you want to consider this a similar kind of a operation, armored horses. Uh, horses have been armored up, going clear back into the ancient Persian cataphracts who fought against the Romans using padded cloth, chainmail, scale, armor, etc. By the early Renaissance, certainly by the early 1400s. Uh, there was a move towards fully armored horses by the Europeans uh, using plate armor, primarily for use against longbow and crossbow bolts, uh, but also they were very useful against various pole arms as well. By 1500, virtually all heavy cavalry was on fully armored horses. Again, it was good against longbows, crossbows, and pikes. All of these all of the above, of course, were run by muscle power. With the introduction of the steam engine by James Watt in 1765, you have, well, a new paradigm. In 1769, a gentleman named Cugnot developed a steam wagon. Uh, unfortunately, he ran into a brick wall and was thrown into prison for that, oh no. or at least into jail. Uh, he designed it specifically to haul artillery for the French army, but it didn't work out so well. Napoleon himself was selected to the French Institute uh, with a paper that he wrote entitled The Automobile at War. Well, actually, it was in French, but nevertheless, uh, The Automobile at War, the automobile being an autom a, a mobile, an automobile uh, Something vehicle. Something that was self-propelled. Self-propelled, exactly. Um, and, of course, there were armored trains. Uh, steam engines work well on tracks. <laughs> They're very heavy, and having a nice uh, iron track to hold it up is a good thing. Uh, these armored trains first looked at uh, during the American Civil War became a very major part of the Bolshevik Revolution, and Trotsky was very famous for having his armored trains rushing troops to the whatever front needed his attention the most. Um, that actually would probably be a cool episode sometime. We'll have to look into that. Armored trains? Armored trains. Sure, exactly. why not? We'll talk about Trotsky. The real change, however, happened with the uh, endless chain track. That was a game changer. Uh, difficulties of wheeled vehicles carrying great weight uh, and traveling cross-country is the issue. There was a, um, had been a successful use of steam tractors in South Africa towing wagons, and they have their you know, land trains, uh, and it worked very well. But that's over felt, you know, uh, right. the felt, which was very, very hard. firm footing. Beautiful, firm footing. It worked well in the American West, most of the American West, uh, and in Southern Africa and Australia. Uh, these things worked beautifully in, again, places where there's hard-packed ground. Right. And this is something we take for granted in the modern world, at least in the modern West, and all, quote unquote, civilized parts of the world is roads. Mm -hmm. Good, firm, hard roads 
that even in rain don't get mushy and gushy and suck you down mm -hmm. to your axles we we can't the modern modern people cannot relate to that if in until you've been somewhere where you have you you literally cannot drive a wheeled vehicle because you will be up to your doors in gush. like movie sets like movies <laughs> <laughs> been there done that exactly so the problem was how to traverse mud there were some very early uh, attempts at what they would call a um, endless chain track. According to J.F.C. Fuller in his Tanks of the Great War, uh, which he wrote within a year of the end of that war, World War I, one of the earliest patents for such an endless chain was 1801. There were further developments through the uh, 19th century, and in fact, in 1888, there was a patent for a battle tractor, which actually shows a, a remarkably modern-looking track. And oddly enough, all of these, all of these inventions seem to be Anglo-American. Uh, I haven't found anything from the German, Germanic, or even the French uh, inventions that uh, that I anyway I haven't been able to find anything on them. Uh, the introduction of the internal combustion engine also was a major game changer. The real problem for automobiles uh, prior to this was the very poor weight to power ratio of steam engines. When you have something as big as a locomotive, it doesn't really matter. They're very, very powerful. They weigh a lot, but the friction isn't the problem. So you can have a lot of weight. Um, there's, you know, not only the need for very heavy machinery, at least certainly with the uh, uh, designs of the day, but you also had a need for lots need for lots of fuel and water to keep those things running. So uh, again, when you have nice hard ground, they work great. Steam tractors worked great. If you don't have hard ground, not so much. The development of the petrol engine or gasoline engine in the 1880s by Daimler and Olds. Uh, basically was the answer. In fact, it was also the answer to the aeroplane uh, prior to the development of the petrol engine. You weren't going to have an airplane. Sorry, steampunks, but steam-powered air travel really doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't work. Uh, the much better weight-to-power ratio allowed for motor cars and trucks, tanks, airplanes, and zeppelins. Yay. Yay. You can't really have a steam-powered Zeppelin. It has to have petroleum engines, at least something of that nature, something with a very light uh, weight-to-power ratio. Um, all of these uh, that I just mentioned, motor cars, tanks, airplanes, and Zeppelins, were very much a part of the technology revolution, which unfortunately fueled World War I's death toll. On the other side of the world, at least... <laughs> a ways away uh, in the United States, uh, a gentleman named Benjamin Holt uh, in my hometown of Stockton, California, was working on various types of farm equipment. His company was manufacturing combines and steam tractors in Stockton. Uh, they even built some steam tractors with uh, six-foot-wide wheels, three of them on each side, uh, and I don't, I mean, in a row, like on one axle. Wow. Across. Uh, to be used in the Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta. 
which is just adjacent to Stockton, which is about a 750 square mile triangle of extremely rich, extremely soft and spongy bottomland. Regular wagons, uh, even with 10 inch wide wheels, would sink in this. Horses, even with extra wide horseshoes, had a tendency to sink in it when it was wet. And um, a lot of it's below sea level and it's surrounded by levees. Very damp stuff, very much like Belgium and the Netherlands, in mm -hmm. fact. Uh, very rich, dark soil, very spongy. At any rate, these steam tractors with seven foot high by six foot wide wheels worked, but were really awkward. Imagine turning one of these things around. Um, yeah, it, it, it takes a, a big dime to turn, on, turn those on. Holt had traveled to England in 1903 to investigate British developments uh, and sent other employees in, to investigate various American developments. And they came to the conclusion that a uh, one of these continuous link chain belts was the answer. The first test of their track type vehicle was on Thanksgiving Day, or November 24th, for those of you who are in the United States, of 1904, using a steam tractor and wooden slats for the track. He patented uh, this track laying vehicle using a petrol motor on December 17th of 1907. First production began in 1908 and they were used primarily, the first ones were used primarily in the Mojave Desert for the construction of the Los Angeles Aqueduct. One of the reasons was uh, the greater efficiency of using petrol engines in the desert as opposed to horses or steam engines. Mm. It was just uh, easier to provide a lot of petrol than that much water that uh, steam engines and horses required. These things have huge four-cylinder engines. A friend of mine in the environs of Sacramento uh, has one of these things, Bob Kirtland. He also has his own railroad. At any rate, he's got this Holt steam or Holt petrol tractor uh, this was used by the U.S. Army in 1918, and the cylinders are like six inches across. They're huge, but uh, anyway, they work. Uh, in the first trials, though, the photographer, Holt's photographer, said, it looks like a caterpillar, and Ben Holt replied, then caterpillar it shall be. So that's where it came from. That's where it came from. Yeah, the photographer said, man, that looks like a caterpillar, and Holt said, great name. Sure. That's what it shall be. Um, <clears throat> when I was in graduate school, I was incredibly fortunate into uh, in having several a number of professors who were, uh, well, obviously they were very into history, but they were working on a project about Benjamin Holt. And I was sent off into the library to do some research, and I came up with a bunch of these glass plate negatives, which had all kinds of neat photos of the British War Ministry doing tests using Holt tractors. Uh, the name of the the name of the library might be a dead giveaway as to what this was all about. It was the Holt Atherton Pacific Center for Western Studies. Note, Holt is in there. <laughs> the, the fellow who was basic, their main benefactor was named Holt Atherton, grandson of Benjamin Holt. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll have a, uh, a link to a book that is available on Amazon in there that I was actually did some of the research for. Of course, I didn't get mentioned, but at least they gave me the book. Yeah, it's the Benjamin Holt story. Yep. 
um, on Caterpillar. Mm -hmm. uh, really cool book, and uh, I'm very familiar with all of the authors because they were professors of mine. Very cool stuff. The unholy trinity of trench, machine gun, and barbed wire with the outbreak of World War I uh, and the use of technological developments of the past 50 years all came together. They were railroads to deliver troops and supplies quickly and in vast amounts to the battlefield. There was rapid fire artillery to rain destruction upon advancing troops. There were machine guns to do the same. Small bore, long range, smokeless powder ammunition for both the machine guns and the magazine rifles uh, issued to all of the infantry along with barbed wire and later poison gas. All of these caused the reintroduction of siege slash trench warfare and all helped to make defense stronger and the attack weaker. Holt tractors were purchased by the British and French armies to haul artillery and supplies, uh, but oddly enough, they were first purchased by the Austro-Hungarian army in 1912. The Austrians had some really big, I mean, really big artillery pieces, um, 420 millimeter guns that were actually the Germans borrowed to use to, to reduce some of the fortresses in Belgium. And they required some massive motive power of horses just weren't sufficient. And so they bought these big Holt tractors to use. Obviously in 1914, when they decided to order lots of them, uh, that became an impossibility. Armored cars were also being used by all the combatants in the early months of the war when things were fairly mobile. But Colonel Ernest Swinton of the British Army proposed in October of 1914 the idea of combining the Holt Caterpillar system with an armored car. The British Army was actually uninterested. Uh, they felt that there was no need for such a thing, besides the war was going to be over by Christmas anyway, so why should we bother? However, the Admiralty, under the direction of First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, was interested. Uh, so the Admiralty, the Navy, took the lead and developed what they called the Landships Committee in 1915. The first proposals were pretty wild. A 40-foot-high wheel ah. by 13 feet wide, uh, weighing 300 tons. That was the first proposal. Uh, that sounds like a, a siege tower, a portable siege tower. <laughs> well, definitely a land ship. Uh, yeah. Actually, uh, the War of the Worlds guy, um, H.G. Wells. Wells, had proposed such a thing as land ships in 1900 uh, for use in South Africa, and that these would you know crush everything ahead of them, and being yeah like 300 tons or a, something. A real juggernaut. A juggernaut, yes. But um, these, this proved to be somewhat. Impractical. impractical yes there were trials at the, that time though of the caterpillar the holt caterpillar tractor for use as prime movers of artillery and hmm let's put these ideas together uh, william For foster and company limited was tasked to produce uh, a model and hms centipede which is also known as little willie was the result Little Willie is a armored box on a tractor. It wasn't. A, it, there were no actual Holt Caterpillar parts used in this. It was all, it was all built 
by William Foster and Company, and they were actually producing tractors of their own. They just weren't quite as good as the Holt tractor. But nevertheless, the uh, William Foster and Co Company Limited produced not only Little Willie, which proved that this would work, but also Big Willie, which was effectively the the first real tank. Uh, it was the model for it was for the Mark One, which was later produced, and was the first tank used in combat. At this point, the Army now was interested and formed a joint committee with the Navy. And what year is, are we in at this 1915. point? 1915. Okay. Um, interestingly, the, the committee was renamed, and it was the, uh, the Experimental Committee, uh, uh, renamed to the Tank Supply Committee. As a cover? As a cover, yep. Because they figured, what can we call it? Can we call it a cistern? Uh, we could call it, you know, a reservoir. Oh, tank is easy. Yeah. It's nice and short and simple. But they wanted to have something to <clears throat> cover for the fact that they're building these really big iron things. Mm -hmm. What are we going to call it? Well, it's a tank. It's like a water tank. So that was the cover for all of this. According to Fuller, the requirements for this new machine was uh, for the uh, this Caterpillar cruiser was first off large numbers to be used in conjunction with a major infantry attack. They felt that uh, the first use of it had to be in large numbers to gain surprise. Secondly, it was better to have lots of smaller rather than a few very large uh, of these tanks. They were armored against rifle and machine gun fire but not artillery fire. Uh, they had to be enclosed but not, you know, they, they figured, felt that to make them artillery-proof was just going to be way too heavy. The tactical object is the attack, um, and therefore uh, they needed guns in the front, but machine guns for flank and rear. They, had a, uh, they were to have a six-man crew, two gunners, two Lewis gunners, which are machine gunners, and two drivers. They needed to be capable of crossing shell craters 12 feet across by 6 feet deep with sloping sides and able to cross a 4-foot trench and also go over extended barbed wire entanglements. One of the things to remember about World War I is it wasn't just a trench. There was all this barbed wire, yards and yards of barbed wire between, the, between no man's land and the trench. And it was very easily to get entangled in this. And that's where you, a lot of guys got killed. And you just get stuck in this stuff. Uh, it was to have a speed of not less than two miles an hour over oh broken ground uh, and a range of action of six hours of continuous movement. Uh, the wheels could either be the ped rail, which you've probably seen pictures of. Basically, it's a wheel with huge blocks on it sur surrounding it, which does manage to spread out the, the load over over the ground a little bit. But it's still a wheel. It's still a wheel. Or the Caterpillar, which of course was the preferred. Uh, Big Willie, which was the model for the Mark I tank, when it was finally built, was 8 feet high, 26 feet long, 11 feet wide, and had 3-foot sponsons on either side. These sponsons could either hold a 6-pounder gun on each side or a Lewis gun poking out of it. The uh, 
the crew ended up being one officer and nine other ranks and was the classic lozenge shape that you think of when you think of a World War I tank. It's a very odd shape compared to modern tanks, but it certainly worked at the time. You'll see it in the header image for this, for this episode of History Files. Yeah, there, it's, it's, it's very distinct. Construction began in secrecy, of course, with the Tank Supply Committee. The lozenge shape of the Mark I continued through the end of the war, and the first ones had a weird set of rear, rear steering wheels. Um, the, the Holt tractors had front a front steering wheel on it, and I don't mean a steering wheel as in, in the, the driver carrying, but it's this is a wheel that actually turns. Um, these wheels were discontinued, um, and using the track brake system was eventually used instead. Yeah, it seems like those wheels would have been really vulnerable to damage. They were vulnerable to damage, and also the hydraulics and stuff were not that efficient ah. and broke down. So it just, eh, it was too complicated. Too complex, yep. Um, the male tanks had their six pounder guns and sponsons, and the female tanks had machine guns and their sponsons off to the side. And both had machine guns in front and rear uh, as well, a total of four in addition to what else they carried. Uh, the first engines were 105 horsepower. They were later 125 horsepower, six-cylinder engines. The powertrain was from the pre-war Foster Daimler tractor. By 1918, though, the Mark V Star tank was 32.5 feet long, weighed 33 tons, and could also serve as an armored personnel carrier, carrying up to 25 troops in addition to its eight-man crew. They were large. They were very large. They're also getting to be very good by that point. Uh, and uh, this Mark V and the Mark V Star were the primary tanks of the British, uh, certainly the primary heavy tank of everybody in the, on the uh, Western Allies side by the late months of the war. The British also made some lighter tanks, which were descended from Little Willie, and looked a, uh, a lot different from these lozenge-shaped heavy tanks. Um, much more modern. The tanks were pretty much under the cab, uh, and anyway, they look they, they look more modern. The Whippet tank, which was the primary light tank, was 20 feet long, 9 feet high, uh, 8.5 feet wide, and weighed a mere 13 tons with a crew of three. It had three machine guns in the cab, and it looks like it's a turret, but it actually isn't. It doesn't rotate, and could go a uh, a lightning speed of 13 miles an hour. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's... Nosebleeds. <clears throat> Nosebleed, yeah. I mean, at that point, you, it'll suck your breath. The French were not that far behind the British. The father of French tanks is one Jean-Baptiste Eugène, or uh, Eugène uh, Estienne, and uh, it was pretty much his his brainchild, Uh and, of course, once they discovered the British were working on the same thing, there was at least a little bit of uh, cross-pollination. While the British were looking to develop an entirely new machine, the French looked into modifying existing machines, and they used the Holt tractor as a starting point. In May of 1915, the French arms manufacturer Schneider began experiments using the Holt 75-horsepower and 45-horsepower tractors. They decided upon using the 45-horsepower Baby Holt, 
for future development and their prototype was built in early 1916 um, and became their 13-ton Schneider tank. The Saint-Chamond and Schneider tanks both featured a marked front-heavy look. Um, <clears throat> they both mounted 75-millimeter guns. The Saint-Chamond uh, uh, um, uh, would take the standard French 75 field gun load. The uh, Schneider did not. It took a, very, a much lighter 75-millimeter load. Uh, but still, they were they were both um, they both take fairly heavy artillery pieces. Uh, <clears throat> the Schneider, pardon me, the Saint Chamond had it in the in the bow. I guess you'd, you'd call it the bow of it. Um, and anyway, they look really weird. Unfortunately, both of them had pretty short caterpillar tread chassis, and their trench crossing abilities were pretty well compromised because of that. Um, the uh, Saint-Chamond was about 27 feet long and weighed 23 tons with an underpowered engine, uh, which was a, a four-cylinder Panhard 90-horsepower engine. It could go 12 miles an hour, however, over good ground and had an eight-man crew. It's found its use in early 1918, not so much as a tank, but as an assault gun, which is, you know, an armored basically an armored artillery piece for taking out German artillery batteries at range. And that, I mean, that's kind of how I think of these early tanks <clears throat> as they're, they're basically mobile gun emplacements. Mobile gun emplacements, mobile pillboxes. Yeah. Very much. That was very much the idea was a mobile pillbox. And uh, certainly when we get into talking about the German tank, that's really very much what it was. The French, however, in a whole, went in a whole different direction, uh, one of their manufacturers. Uh, the tank of the war, the important tank of the war, in my opinion, was the Renault FT, which initiated the design of tanks which has been followed pretty faithfully for the next 99 years since its introduction. And I put one of those in our header image, too. Absolutely. Actually, two of them. Louis Renault of the Renault Automobile Company was asked by then-Colonel Estienne to look into designing an armored vehicle, uh, actually he went to, to Renault before he went to Schneider, but Renault said, I have no experience building track vehicles, so no, nah, I'm pretty well filled up anyway. By 1916 though, by July of 1916, Renault decided to take on uh, the idea, got the bit in his teeth and he ran with it. And how many years into the war are we at this point? We're two years into the yeah. war. The war has been on just about two years. And like, and no, the war's not over yet. I think we better start trying to get some technological stuff going yep. here. And we're into the hundreds of thousands of casualties oh, yeah. on each side. And an absolute stalemate. The uh, in July of 1916, 100 years ago, in? everybody was had been dug in for almost two years or a year and a half. And the, even the British, and well, we're in the midst of Verdun. The French army is being bled white by the German army. The German army is not doing itself any favors at Verdun either. And the British are about to launch their uh, big offensive at the Somme, which killed off the cream of their young men, um, the PALS battalions. And so uh, things were getting down to the wire. So Louis Renault had some uh, ideas of his own on how this should be. First off, he decided it should have a seven-ton maximum weight, 
he decided it's better to build a whole lot of small light ones uh, rather than a few big ones. Basically going right back to what the experimental committee had said in the first place. Uh, he redesigned the engine that he was already building to improve its horsepower so you had a much better uh, power to weight ratio. And it actually had effective ventilation. Most of the tanks, in fact all of the tanks built heretofore, had the engine right in the middle of the crew compartment. And I mean it made it handy for the 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 mechanics to work on it, but it also meant there's all this these fumes and heat it's, and all this stuff. And you know it's throwing oil everywhere. And they were and loud hot and loud and, oh my and stinky. I mean, you get not only you know exhaust in the crew compartment from this, you also get the um, petrol fumes mm -hmm. and everything. It's just it was miserable and it's hot. So Renault decided he was going to put the engine in the back. It was actually a, a smart place to do it. Virtually all tanks today have their engines in the back. The only one that doesn't is the Israeli Merkva. And they put their engine in the front because, well, they figured it's better to get shot in the engine than have your crew killed. A little extra, a little extra protection. But the advantage that Renault felt was uh, having the engine in the back was it had a very large fan, uh, cooling fan, and it drew the air from the crew compartment. So basically it was drawing air from the outside in towards the engine so right past a, the crew. A negative pressure in the crew compartment. Right, so it gave the crew at least a little bit of cooling. So it was definitely a, a, sure. an aid to, to the comfort of the crew. Um, he used a very large front idler wheel to help crossing over obstacles. I uh, put in a little trail, it's this cute little ducktail on the back of it used for crossing trenches. But the big thing was he put a rotating turret on the top. So this is the first rotating turret. This is the first one on a on a tank. Mm. The rotating turret had actually been invented by John Erickson, uh, working for the United States Navy in 1862, and they built the Monitor. Right. Uh, and had been very successfully used on ships. But this was the first land vehicle to use a turret, and uh, at least in to my to my understanding and uh, it was mounted with either a 37 millimeter trench gun or a Hotchkiss machine gun. The Renault FT was adopted in April of 1917 and they built almost 3,000 of them by November of 1918. They were used by the French and by the United States armies. The United States actually bought a large number of them and 850 of them were actually manufactured by Ford although none of them saw combat. The Renault became the prototype for all subsequent successful tank designs, and post-war they were actually exported all over the world, some even being used as late as World War II by Finland, France, and Yugoslavia in last-ditch uh, efforts. Uh, by the way, two Renault FTs were found in Kabul in 2003 by the U.S. Army. Functioning? Functioning. Uh, and the... Uh, Afghan government transferred them to the United States. One has a 37mm gun, the other one has the 8mm Hotchkiss machine gun, and they now reside in Fort Benning, Georgia at the National Armor and Cavalry Museum. So it's like, huh, you never know where you're going to find cool stuff. So there it is, two perfectly 
workable Lorno FTs in Afghanistan, of all places. And, and were they World War II era? World War One era. I'm yeah. sorry, World War One era. Yeah, they're they're. I think they were made in the. Uh, in like the very early 20s. And Afghanistan is the home of old stuff that still works. The death of, yeah, it's the graveyard of empires and their imperial stuff. <laughs> the only German entry into the tank field was the A7V. It's a boxy brute weighing in at 33 tons with a crew of 18, which included a cook, by the way. You have to have a cook. Uh, and although the Germans um, ordered these in 1917, production was limited to about 20. Uh, that's uh, the best information I have is actually made 20 of them. They were armed with a 57 millimeter gun in front and six MG08 machine guns at various points around it. They had two 101 horsepower Daimler four-cylinder engines, and they had a pretty good road speed. They went nine miles an hour which is pretty good for something that weighty. Unfortunately, it also had a very high center of gravity, poor ground clearance, and mm, they just weren't that great. It's a big box on tracks. Mm, yeah, definitely the moving pillbox. If you want to see some color footage of replica versions of that and of the, the British Mark IV, the British Tank Museum picked up the replicas that were made for the movie War Horse mm -hmm. um, in 2012, and they've got them there, and so they trot those out instead of originals now when they right. want to drive tanks around. But uh, I'll have links to the their YouTube channel and show, showing you those guys in action, and you can see how boxy and clunky that, that German one is and just how cool the, the British one is and now it's like it's obviously designed for trench warfare yeah yeah oh and also there's links on the there too not on our site but on the youtube sites to uh uh arlie ermy driving oh, yeah. around uh oh Renault. It's, it's it's a link link fest if you go to either of those links that we'll provide and you can just fall down the youtube rabbit hole and look at tank videos all day there's there's actually a fair number because they made so many of them yeah. of working renault's still wandering loose across the landscape. Uh, at any rate, the, uh, the Germans did actually organize several tank units during the war, but most of the tanks they used were captured British tanks, which had been either disabled or suffered mechanical failure or ran out of gas uh, far from their infantry support. The Germans, however, did spend a fair amount of effort in anti-tank uh, uh, what do you call them? Um, anyway, for do, doing anti-tank measures, yes, thank you. Uh, the first thing that they did, because they discovered the Mark I had fairly thin armor. It, you know, it wasn't that thick, but uh, 10 millimeter or something like that, which isn't very thick, uh, about half inch, not even half inch. That's about a little over, that's about, a, anyway, Anyways, it's thin. it's vulnerable to vulnerable. machine gun fire. And it was it would withstand against the machine gun and rifle ammunition they made right then, but they changed their ammunition. They put a iron core in it, and their K-type bullets. The Germans, the Germans, yeah. the Germans started manufacturing uh, ammunition with an iron core. It wasn't a steel core, true armor piercing, but it was certainly good enough to punch right through a Mark One. And so the British had to up armor in their Mark Twos and Threes, and finally. Uh, which they didn't really issue many of, and they finally issued out the Mark IV, which was proof against that. There's an interesting story from World War II, though, about 
some Brits with a, uh, I believe they were with Matilda tanks. Couldn't have been Matilda's. Anyway, they had their some British tanks. Uh, this one, this the tank uh, platoon commander noticed that his was the fastest tank around. I mean, he had a really zippy tank. And they got into one little, uh, what do you call it? Skirmish? Skirmish, yeah, with the Germans. And... Encounter? Encounter, that's a good one. A uh, little mix-up with the Germans uh, in the Netherlands. And afterwards they noticed that there were a lot of bullets sticking into the front of their tank. They weren't didn't go through, but they were just sticking in it. And the tank mechanic looked at that and said, hmm, that's odd. And he called the commander over uh, and he who looked at it and said, huh, that's odd. Underpowered bullets or well, soft armor? <laughs> they went to their the officer in command of the uh, maintenance for their regiment and they said, look at this. And he said, huh, that's odd. Hang on a minute. And he looked up the serial number and said, oh, this is a training tank. That's not real armor on there. That's mild steel. You've been driving around a tank that wasn't meant for this. Oh my goodness, it was soft. It was soft. And so the bullets just stuck in it. Well, that worked. It worked, more or less. Uh, <laughs> they were able to jump a canal in the Netherlands, which allowed them to escape from some tigers, well, some German tanks. I'm assuming it was lighter than... Oh, yeah, it was real zippy because yeah. it didn't have... Wow, this is a regular sports car. Yeah, it's Woo-hoo. handy when you don't have all that... Actual armor. Hardened steel armor, real thick stuff Ooh. on there. Whoops. Uh, they decided to keep it because they'd been driving it for most yeah. of the war. <laughs> they we'll got just, through all kinds we'll of engagements. Nail some more stuff on there. Yeah, on the we'll side. just, yeah, we'll put a couple sandbags in the front. It'll go, it'll be great. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so the big thing the Germans did, though, for their anti-tank efforts was they developed what was called the T-Gewehr, a 13-millimeter single-shot bolt-action rifle, which is frigging huge. It weighs about 30 pounds uh, and is just about the top end of what a human can endure for recoil. Does it have a bipod? It has a bipod. Okay. <laughs> yes, it's got a bipod. You don't shoot it offhand. It was designed for a guy laying down and shooting it. Um, CNR Arsenal, which we'll have a link to, actually ha- got a hold of one of these and took it out and shot it. And uh, it's very illuminating. So I recommend that if you have any interest in that, go to the link that we provided to CNR Arsenal. And they also have some marvelous stuff on German and Austrian guns and all kinds of really cool stuff. Oh, uh, Otias, who runs the thing, is an interesting guy. Anyway, so tanks in combat. The very first use of the modern tank in combat was on September 15th of 1916 during the protracted Battle of the Somme. Some 49 tanks were employed, although only 32 of them actually made the attack, and only nine were able to push ahead of the infantry and be of any use. Nine others were able to come up and help take care of some German strong points that were still holding out. One tank, however, managed to straddle a trench and, with enfilading fire, forced some 300, 300 Germans to surrender. Another so shooting down the trench, shooting down the trench, and then it crossed over the trench and zipped around the far side of the trench and basically uh, 
the wow. Germans were so demoralized by this yeah. that thinking, they though. just surrendered to the uh, accompanying British infantry. Another attacked a German battery and destroyed it, uh, destroyed at least one gun before being hit itself. Some of the lessons learned from this and other combat were that the concept was sound and seriously deserved further, uh, further use and further investigation. The concept of a tank. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and one of the things that they discovered was that it was especially good with the morale of the infantry. It was encouraging for their own infantry and demoralizing to the enemies. Tanks were much used between 1916 and the end of the war in 1918, uh, but the tanks, both British and French, really came into their own in 1918 with the breakdown of trench warfare. Though originally designed for the big breakthrough, to make the big breakthrough, they were discovered to be even more useful in open fields. The first indications of this were in the Palestine Campaign, where both horse cavalry and armor were utilized to excellent effect in 1917 by General Allenby of the British Army. Uh, and if it, one looks at modern history, uh, one will discover that the Israelis are very fond of tanks for a very good reason. It's excellent tank country, and the British discovered this pretty early on. There's actually one recorded tank versus tank combat in World War I, it involved three British Mark IVs versus three German A7Vs, which had accidentally bumped into each other. Well, they didn't actually hit each other, but uh, met each other during the Second Battle of uh, Via um, Bretagne. I'll darn if I can remember how to pronounce it, but uh, it was in April of 1918. How do you spell it? Uh, oh, Villiers. Villiers. <laughs> I'll, I'll have a link in the show notes. Anyway, it's the second battle of that in April of 1918 during the German Spring Offensive, Operation Michael, which almost won the war for Germany. Uh, the combat was two of these British Mark IVs, which were female, only had sub, which only had machine guns on it, ran into these German tanks, which drove the British tanks off with some damage, uh, until the male Mark IV showed up and knocked out the first German tank. It then proceeded to drive off the other German tanks uh, until it, the Mark IV, the male Mark IV itself, was disabled by German artillery fire. That's what happens when you get artillery involved in the game. They, they spoiled all the fun. Uh, but one can call it pretty much a draw. The uh, Germans drove off one set of British tanks, and one British tank destroyed and drove off the German tanks. The future of the tank was pretty much set into place due to the vision of Lieutenant Colonel J.F.C. Fuller, from whose book Tanks in the Great War I consulted for this episode. His Plan 1919 envisioned coordinated attacks with infantry and armor. Uh, it would have artillery support, but also close air support, as championed by Colonel Billy Mitchell of the U.S. Army Air Corps. There was also increased firepower of the infantry, especially in the French and American Army, with semi-automatic infantry rifles, submachine guns, and automatic rifles, such as the Browning automatic rifle, which was just coming into use in the U.S. Army. It's a good thing it didn't happen, because it was would have been, you know, that much larger a, a death toll on all sides. But it's very interesting to study from the perspective of what could have been. 
Visionaries such as Fuller, Mitchell, and also Colonel Charles de Gaulle were widely ignored in their own countries. Citizens wanted to forget the war, and soldiers wanted to get back to real peacetime soldiering. However, other people were reading their books. German and Russian soldiers... Reading the books of those generals? Yep, okay. reading the books of Fuller, Mitchell, and de Gaulle. And the Germans and Russians appreciated their writings and the theories of these visionaries. German-Soviet cooperation in the late 1920s and early 30s allowed for both of them to explore these ideas along with their own development during the, um, their own ideas that they developed during World War I. The result was the Blitzkrieg, or Lightning War. That's what Fuller was talking about. That's, but, but that in, in World War II. Right. The Germans use right. it in World War II, but that's exactly what Fuller was envisioning in 1919, was a lightning war. It was was Blitzkrieg, as used World by the Germans. World War I ended in... 1918. 1918. So he was, he was planning... Plan 1919 was his gambit to... Yep. To have some kind of victory. Right. Nobody nobody expected the war to end that quickly. Uh, n certainly not in 1918. Nobody expected the German army to collapse that quickly. Wow. And so the... It's ironic because when the war started, they thought, we'll all be home by Christmas, and then it just never ended. Right. It went on and on and on. And so as quickly and unexpectedly as it started, it quickly and unexpectedly ended. Sort of was four years of bloodbath, and then boom. We're done. Uh, unfortunately for the West, well, the Western powers held firm to their infantry and artillery and horse cavalry tactics of World War I and before, the Germans and the Soviets moved on. Uh, they used not only infantry, but of course they used a lot of tanks or armor and airplanes in close support. The U.S. Army still uses basic French doctrine from World War I. Push forward until you meet resistance, then call in fire support. The Russians use Blitzkrieg as their model, though. They push fast and hard, go around hard points, and get into your rear areas and destroy their enemy. Hopefully we'll never see uh, which one of these is the best, because uh, that would be ugly. At any rate... The tank has had a huge effect on modern warfare. Uh, nobody goes into a modern war without tanks. Nobody goes into modern war without a lot of armor. And uh, it's only 100 years old. It's just like airplanes. We tend to think of airplanes as being omnipresent. We see them go overhead all the time. They're very modern. They're very new. The change in the last 100 years has been phenomenal. Uh, the change in... The four years of World War I was phenomenal, and the die was set by 1916 as to how warfare was going to be fought in the next hundred plus years. So that pretty much wraps it up. The, uh, the tank was important. It was uh, a lot of fun to research. I know a lot of people are really into researching tanks and, and uh, playing World of Tanks. It's a really cool online game. Uh, well, I guess it is a multiplayer. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's game. totally multiplayer, and I'm terrible at it. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, we got to at PAX Prime a couple of years ago. We got to be right across from them, and it's oh, very loud. Every year we're next to World of Tanks, and it's the loudest. It's the loudest game 
at Penny Arcade Expo, and we're a tabletop game company. We work with uh, Flying Frog, and so here we are, a quiet little tabletop game company, and they put us next to the noisiest game on the floor. But it's fun. That's it, okay. <laughs> I, I like looking at it. I like watching the things. I don't play it, but it's fun to watch. Yeah, I, I go and play every year, and I'm terrible, but i got to get my T-shirt. So, anyway, there we are. Tanks. Okay. Well... So thanks for joining us today for Tanks. And uh, if you enjoy this show, you can be sure to, to uh, check out our other offerings at SciCon, which you can find at SciCon.fm. And as always, the notes for this episode can be found on our History Files page at SciCon.fm slash THF52. You can contact us with your questions or comments at HistoryFilesShow at gmail.com. Thanks to the reposters and retweeters and all of you who listen. History Files wouldn't be possible without your support. And special thanks to those who give of their resources every month via Patreon or PayPal. You know who you are. Now, of course, we try to do our research and share the most current information on any topic, but we don't claim to be the last word on any subject. So we welcome input from you, especially if you have information that we don't. So join us again next time for another exciting adventure in The History Files. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions, a proud member of the SciCon Podcast Network. For show notes, more episodes, or to join the conversation on Slack, visit us at scicon.fm slash thf. We also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat. Meow.